Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, as we contemplate Jesus, as we see him enter Jerusalem to achieve his great triumph, as we ask ourselves, who is this? We pray that you might reveal the answer to us truly, that you might help us to see who Jesus Christ truly is. Open up your word to us now by the power of your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I often joke that when it came to planning my wedding, I only had one responsibility, and I did it so badly that for 27 years I haven't had to take another responsibility. I was the one who was supposed to get the invitations ordered, and oh, I did. And those invitations turned out to be so expensive we couldn't afford to give them to people. I uh, showed my friends what the invitation would have looked like if they had been worthy to have one. But actually, when I think about it, I had more than one responsibility. There was another decision that I had to make. In addition to ordering the invitations, I also had to decide what music the musicians would play when I, as the groom, entered in. We came in through a little side door into the sanctuary, and the musicians were there. And of course, they were going to play the bridal march and all of that stuff when Lori came in. But they had to play a little something when I came in. You imagine the dilemma of having to choose a piece of music like that. What's going to be your theme song at your wedding? And I hadn't given that much thought, but fortunately, an idea came to me that seemed very fitting indeed. So I chose a piece of music from an oratorio by Handel. Uh, not Messiah, but Judas Maccabeus. And the name of the music, the title... See the conquering hero come. See the conquering hero come. I'm not going to hum it for you. If you heard it, you would recognize it because it's often played. It's, it's like a BBC kind of thing. They play anytime they're showing like a, a monarch or something. Uh, and, and that's appropriate because this piece of music, although it was written about something that happened in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it also had a really significant impact and, and reference in its own time in 1746 when Handel wrote it, this little piece of music was dedicated to a man, a prince, Prince William. He was the Duke of Cumberland who had just won the Battle of Culloden. And if you've never heard of the Battle of Culloden, you don't have Scottish ancestors. Because in 1745, the Battle of Culloden was when the English crown finally put down the Scottish pretenders to the throne, the Jacobites, the Stuart dynasty that had been contesting the crown. And in that battle, he was victorious. And so this little piece of music, See the Conquering Hero Come, was written in honor of him. A lot of stuff happened in honor of him because of that great victory. In England, there's a flower 
that's named after Prince William. It's called the Sweet William. And they have a weed in Scotland named after him that's called the Stinking Billy. But the story that Handel was drawing on was the story from the Apocrypha, from the books between Old and New Testament, about Judas Maccabeus. At a time when Israel was ruled not by the Romans, but by the, 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 the Greek-speaking conquerors that had come in the wake of Alexander the Great, there was this ruler who did these abominable things in the temple, and the Jews rose up to stop the idolatry, and they threw these people out. And so this was the story of their victory. So it made sense, just as Judas Maccabeus had driven the idolaters out of Israel and reestablished the worship of the true God, William had driven the Scots out of the kingdom and reestablished the true king, or at least that's the way they felt. This music that was played at my wedding, oh so appropriately, is literally a triumphal march. It's a piece of music that was composed to celebrate a hero returning from a great conquest. Like all triumphs, it was celebrated after the victory. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that we commemorate today is unique among triumphs because the celebration that we see happening doesn't take place after the victory. It takes place before. The things that the people are singing, the things that the people are celebrating, these are all things in the future. Their words, if you think about it, are an expression of their hopes. Jesus' entry is unique in other ways. He enters on a humble donkey instead of a warlike steed. He enters in great humility instead of with the trappings of power. But I think that difference in the sequence is, for me, one of the most striking contrasts. That everything that happens on Palm Sunday, that every hosanna that is sung, is sung in hope, is sung in anticipation It acknowledges that he has come, that the promised one has come, but it also waits on him to do the things that he has come to do. There are so many layers of symbolism in the story. Many of them are preserved for us now, as we've just seen with the children waving their palm branches. There's a significance to the action of the people. The branches that they were waving and throwing into the street on that day had a religious significance to them. Uh, Commentators will point out the way in which uh, palm branches were seen as symbols of victory. It's not unusual for uh, ancient martyrs in Christian iconography to be pictured holding golden palm branches, signifying their victory through death. But there was another significance to the palm branches as well that would have been maybe more apparent to people steeped in Old Testament culture, and it had to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. Because during the Feast of Tabernacles, it was palm branches that the people used to construct the little huts or tabernacles that they would live in to commemorate the time that God had tabernacled with them back in the wilderness. So every year during that festival, that feast, you would 
tear off some palm branches and you would build yourself a little dwelling place and live in it symbolically to remember God's faithfulness to the people in the wilderness. Of course, the significance of the word tabernacle there was that with the people traveling in the wilderness was this collapsible tent in which God dwelled among his people. So as you picture what's happening on Palm Sunday and you see the crowds and you see the, the, the action of the people, the waving of the branches, there's an interesting thing that you're seeing maybe without realizing that you're seeing. Because as you imagine people on either side of Jesus waving those palm branches, you're getting a sort of abstracted sense of what we might recognize as like a barn building or something, where people are throwing up a structure around him. The very branches they would have made those tabernacles out of, they're now holding up before him as he enters down the road as if they were tabernacling around him, assembling this movable booth as he advances. Which is interesting because when John, in John's prologue to his gospel, talks about the significance of Jesus coming in the incarnation, he talks about it as an act of tabernacling. In John 1.14, he writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt if we were translating in a literal wooden sort of sense, could be tabernacled. But he tabernacled with us. So in that moment, you're getting a kind of picture of that. A sign, if you will, that the people inadvertently are creating of the idea that this son of David, this king who is coming, is coming as God to dwell in the midst of his people. There are other echoes. I think the hosannas that the people shout, the, the cheers, the cries coming from the people echo in our ears now with the benefit of hindsight, like the words of the people in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Those words speak of the reality of the new Jerusalem, where God dwells with us. And yet here in the old Jerusalem, a kind of version of that is being acted out by the people, perhaps unwittingly, as they're caught up in the moment. They proclaim for a moment the eternal reality that will be proclaimed when he returns. It's moving to imagine that scene and to see the many different layers, all of the things that are going on. And yet, there's also something that's not a layer, that's not hidden, that's not subtle. There's, there's a really obvious significance to what is taking place, to what the people are doing and saying. This son of David, this one who comes in the name of the Lord, this prophet Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee, is not just coming to Jerusalem. He is coming to Jerusalem as king. As king. There's no subtlety to it, no interpretation, no need to dig into old rituals that are being reimagined for us. He is literally proclaimed as king. 
In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew, as we see, cites prophecy that is fulfilled at this moment. He goes back, not surprisingly, to our old friend Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9. But Zechariah is also echoing words that Isaiah says as well. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Your salvation comes because your king has come. That's the not very hidden significance of the triumphal entry. Jesus Christ has come as a conquering king. Today, on Palm Sunday, Friday, in our Good Friday service, and next Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the events of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, His death, and His resurrection, primarily through the lens of His kingship. What it means that He endured these things and achieved these things as a king. Because make no mistake, on this day, the people turned out and gathered. The excitement went through the whole city. People came to see the king. They were there to get a glimpse of the king. And they got it. A momentary vision of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ's kingdom is spiritual, not physical. Christ's warfare is spiritual warfare, not physical. His strength to us often looks like weakness, and His triumph looks to us a lot like defeat. But that's a testament to our lack of sanctification. The fact that when we look at Him and what He does, we see it that way, we see it through that lens, shows that we still measure kingship according to the standards of a fallen world. A king for us is what a king looks like in this sinful economy. But the kingship of Jesus is different. And the victory of Jesus is different. We're not alone in not seeing Him rightly. The people of Israel made the same mistake. Here He was, entering the city on a humble donkey, not a regal steed. His kingship didn't seem real. Yes, they cried out in hope. Maybe some of them cried out mostly in hope that although things were starting humbly, that Jesus would level up, that He would become a more kingly sort of king because they wanted a king who acted like a king. They wanted a king who took power. They wanted a king who crushed his foes, and more importantly, theirs. They wanted a king who rewarded his supporters. And in order to be that kind of king, he'd need more than a borrowed donkey to do all of that. So they had hope that he might one day fulfill their expectations. Even the disciples, the ones closest to him, had these misunderstandings. We've seen before that great irony at the beginning of the book of Acts, when all this work is done, when Jesus has been crucified, buried, has risen from the dead, just as he's about to ascend to heaven, the disciples stop him. Before you go, we, we do have a question for you. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
It's an astonishing thing for them to ask. Given everything that he's done and everything that he said about his kingdom, they've seen it all, they've taken it in. They're like, yeah, this is great. I love all this spiritual stuff. But is it now time to do the real thing that you came here to do? Is it now time to establish what we were expecting? The physical kingdom that we long for. Because of those misunderstandings, it's sometimes difficult for us to appreciate the reality of the triumph of Jesus. And all too often, we think of that triumph as something that we're mainly hoping will happen in the future. We don't so much appreciate the way in which it is already a reality. He is already the victor. And yet every year in churches, just like ours, on Palm Sunday, if we have eyes to see, we get a glimpse of the thing that we find so difficult to see. For a moment, we enact the scene and we behold momentarily in a glimpse Jesus welcomed as king indeed. Luke, in Luke's gospel, when he writes about this, he, he makes the, the idea of kingship very clear. He says, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That fuller description of what the people are saying gives us a sense of how much they saw in Jesus and helps to understand why some who were there got uncomfortable. The Pharisees immediately witnessing these things, hearing what the people were saying, step in and rebuke. They go to Jesus and they tell him, you should rebuke these people for what they're saying. If you've ever asked yourself why that is, why the Pharisees object, it's really simple. Because in acknowledging Jesus as king, as seeing Jesus as the king who comes in the name of the Lord, as seeing his kingship as something that would establish peace in heaven and glory in the highest, singing Hosanna to him, they're doing more than just saying, hey, cool, it looks like there's a new ruler in the land. They're acknowledging his divinity. They're offering him worship. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a human being. To the naked eye appears a creature like any other. And as we know from the Apostle Paul, the essence of sin is to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. The Pharisees naturally, who've been looking to trip Jesus up like this, to trap him in a dilemma, they find a perfect example here. Because the people are clearly blaspheming. They're worshiping this man as if he were God. And so they say, rebuke these people. It's a dilemma. Whichever way Jesus goes, he's trapped. If Jesus listens to them and he rebukes his followers, he'll lose his followers. They'll be disillusioned. They won't want to follow him because instead of rewarding them, he's rebuked them. Whereas if he doesn't rebuke the crowd that he will be complicit in their blasphemy, and that's a concrete charge that you can arrest someone on. And of course, this is the moment where, where Jesus 
chooses neither the, the, the bad option on the one hand or the bad option on the other, but discovers there is some third way to answer this question. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It gives you this momentary glimpse of the different way that Jesus beholds the world compared to the way we do. If there's one thing we know about stones is that they don't cry out. They literally do not have the capacity to do this. And yet Jesus says on this day, if the human beings do not cry out, then the stones will. It's as if all creation, which we know from the book of Romans, groans in anticipation of being liberated from the bonds of sin, is determined that on this day, when the promised king is entering Jerusalem, to win his great triumph, he will be worshipped. And if the human beings won't do it, creation won't stand for him to enter silently. The very stones would cry out. The beautiful thing is they don't have to because the human beings made in the image of God recognize their true king and they celebrate him and they worship him because they glimpse him for a moment as he truly is. They get a glimpse of the anointed one, the king. And that triumphal entry, the beginning of Holy Week, sets the tone for everything, gives a context to everything that happens afterwards. The question, who is this? Answered by the people with some accuracy, but not full. He's a prophet. This is Jesus of Nazareth. But the question that will come fully into focus, we'll see, who is this? He is the king. The beauty is, just as the victory here is celebrated before it's won, the question really is answered before it is asked. Before people, intellectually speaking, have the opportunity to wonder about who this man is, they're already singing praise to him as if they know, as if they've been given some spiritual insight into this moment that they're witnessing. Jesus is the King, the Anointed One, the Savior who was promised. He's the Son of David. He's the Son of God. One of my favorite things to do in a sermon, and it happens rarely, is to reveal some hidden insight that just blows people's minds. And they're just like, wow, I just never saw it that way. And there are texts like that where if you dig in deeply enough, there are these things that are hidden, treasure that once you've seen it, you never look at that passage again the same way. This isn't one of those passages. What I mean is this. The treasure found here is not found by digging underneath it and sifting it and making the hidden connections. The treasure here is found just by seeing it. Just by imagining yourself in that audience imagining your voice joined to theirs. You don't need to be a deep philosopher or a subtle interpreter. You just need to enter into the moment when the king entered in to claim what was his and to, to right what was wrong. And the people set aside whatever doubts they had and just worshipped him because he was their king. And he is your king. He was their salvation. And he's your salvation. Seeing what they saw, they sang Hosanna. But as you see him, you sing Hosanna 
2. In this moment, we get a glimpse of the king. But we also get that anticipation of the triumph of the king as well. We start thinking, well, what, what is this victory that Jesus has come to win? Now, remember, in Matthew's gospel, everything that we've been told has been framed through the lens of kingship. This is Matthew's special concern. So from the very beginning, as we studied Matthew, we've seen it in Matthew 1, the genealogy. It's not just there to bore you. It's there to show his lineage. It's to show that he comes through the line of David, through the line of Abraham. It's to establish his right, that he is the answer to the question of of how will God save us. When the wise men come in Matthew 2, they don't come to see a baby. They come to see he who has been born king of the Jews. And when Herod goes after him in such suspicion, it's because he feels the threat to his own crown. Because he knows the one who has come has come as king. The baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, when John gives him that sign with water, Jesus doesn't need to be cleansed of sin, but he receives that sign as an anointing, as a kingly rite that sets him apart for the work that he is here to do. In Matthew 4, when Satan comes in the wilderness to overcome him through temptation, the highest temptation, the pinnacle, you might say, of these temptations is an offer of kingship. Satan knows he's come to rule and to reign. And he says, I can make that happen for you. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll make you king if only you will bow down and worship me which, of course, Jesus will not do because he has not come to bow to Satan. He has come to conquer him. That's what he's come to triumph over. In chapters 5-7, through we saw the new ethic of Christ's victorious kingdom. In chapters 8 and 9, the miracles demonstrated his kingly authority. In Matthew 10, he sent out his apostles, specifically as messengers of his kingdom, announcing the coming of the kingdom. And then, we saw in Matthew 11, he reassured John the Baptist that he was the one who was promised, that he was the king. In Matthew 12, he said he's king over the Sabbath. He's the Lord of everything. And in Matthew 13, as we've seen, he revealed the secrets of his kingdom through parables. It's all about kingship. Matthew's gospel is all about the kingship of Christ. And as we jump ahead to Matthew 21, you might ask yourself, well, why does kingship matter here? What's the point of thinking of the triumphal entry through the lens of the kingship of Christ? Why does it matter that a king entered Jerusalem? Why does it matter that a king sacrificed himself on the cross or that a king rose from the dead? Well, the answer can be summed up in that single word, triumph. It matters because it's important that we know that the triumph of Jesus was the triumph of a king. This was a kingly victory. What looked to the naked eye like rejection and injustice and death and defeat was actually Christ's triumph from beginning to end. Because that's what a king does. That's how you recognize a king, his triumph over his enemies. 
larger catechism in question 45 explains that one of the ways that Jesus fulfills the office of a king is by restraining and overcoming all our enemies. Just as an earthly king goes to battle to free his people from their foes, Jesus fought for us. That's what it meant to be the anointed king, the Messiah. The most celebrated of the Messianic Psalms is Psalm 110. And when you read Psalm 110, you see that it's framed through the lens of kingship. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's why Satan offered him kingdoms. He knew he had come to rule. He knew that was the reason that he had come. And Jesus insisted that he would rule, but he would rule by conquering over evil, not by bowing down to it. That he would come by bruising and crushing the serpent's head, not by making a deal with the devil. And how Satan must have squirmed on Palm Sunday as the people shouted their hosannas, as they worshipped, as the sound of their voice rose, the sound of those palm branches cutting the air, it was the sound of his impending defeat. Like Herod, he would lose his crown because the true king had entered in. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sums up everything that happens during Holy Week from Palm Sunday to this very moment that we live and breathe in. Everything that's happened from then to now has happened under the heading of Christ's kingship. Since the resurrection, Paul writes, Jesus is destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then comes the end, Paul says, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And Paul adds, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the scope of the triumph of Jesus. That's the meaning of what he accomplished that week in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And it's what makes Palm Sunday every year such a gift to us. Palm Sunday becomes a gift to us Because on that day, the children of the promise found the grace to celebrate the triumph before it happened. They could sing about a victory that hadn't yet been won, and they could do it with abandon, with complete confidence, with trust. Now We look back on that victory that was won at the cross, but we also look forward. We also long for the day when all our enemies, when death itself, are finally done. And in this seemingly endless veil of tears surrounded by misery, grinding tragedy, this numbing place that we dwell in, of suffering, of lament, it is hard to celebrate. If you see what's happening in the world around you, if you see what's happening in your own life, it is hard to do what those people did on that moment. The headlines bring fresh horrors every day, but our everyday lives give us plenty to be horrified about, even if we didn't have the news to keep us miserable. Our hopes seem so far off, so unlikely, that something like simple faith seems like self-delusion to us. 
But that's how their faith must have felt to them too. They were no different from us in that respect. If we suffer, so did they. If we have cause to despair, so did those people. If we feel set upon and oppressed, if we feel like we're suffering, they had just as much reason to be discouraged as we do. Every day their lives were hard like ours. But not on that day. On that day, for that moment, even though they face all the obstacles that we do, somehow they set those things aside and they worshipped him in the light of his victory. By God's grace, on the day King Jesus entered Jerusalem, the stones kept silent. They didn't need to speak because the people did. That is a testament to us that nothing we face, nothing we endure, nothing that we are suffering, real as it is, can stop us from finding that grace to worship Him as well. Just as they found their voice and worshipped, weary as they were, weary as we are, He gives us the grace to worship Him as well. So as we celebrate Holy Week, my prayer for you is like them, you will find the grace to sing your Hosanna to your King. That you will rejoice in the triumph that hasn't happened yet and yet has already been accomplished. That you will feel that deliverance from the bondage that all creation longs for. And that you will know, like the daughters of Zion knew, that your King has come, that your salvation has come. Let's sing Hosanna to Him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.